This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Program. This is part two of After the Smoke Clears, where we'll be heading back to the Latrobe Valley. But first, I'd like to take you to Newcastle, New South Wales, where the third youth in a week has locked themselves to the side of a coal train. This is an attempt to stop all supply heading into the world's greatest, largest coal port. Police are currently on the scene. This young person named Cedar released a statement. Quote, I have turned to direct action because I've tried signing petitions, I've tried going to rallies and it's not enough. We need transition yesterday, we're running out of time. There are so many people in positions of power who are in a position to make positive change. We've got to transition to renewables, we've got to make huge systematic changes if we feasibly want to see a future, unquote. So we see how this generation is frustrated by inaction and stress the need for transition. With what, with that in mind, in this episode we are investigating the transition in that area of East Gippsland that powers 80% of Victoria on brown coal. It is entitled, What is a Just Transition? It came from an interview that we did last episode with Labour candidate for Morwell, Mark Richards. Here is the segment where he discusses a just transition. Ah, well, one thing that I think is missed is that all this change, if you look back at the root cause of it, it comes from a, an aim to improve our environment, stop the global warming. So what really kicked that off was, I believe, Tony Abbott signing on. Maybe he didn't know what he was doing, but he signed on to the Paris Agreement. So the Conference of Parties, or COP21, was held. And um, in that they talk, there's, a, there's really a line within a paragraph that says about it being a just transition. But what people really need to get a hold of is the word just transition. It really should be used in the context of a fair and just transition of workers. So today we will be asking, what is a just transition? What is an unjust transition? We will be talking to Michael Mersman, the president of the Mining and Chemical Workers Union in Germany, where the Ruhr Valley, they transitioned 80,000 jobs in, in 20 years without a single unemployment. We will be talking to the CFMEU Victorian Secretary, Jeff Dyke, who will describe the Latrobe Valley's period after privatisation to see the social cost of what happens when a transition is unmanaged or left to the market. 
Finally, we will talk to Jed Carney, who is the head of the ACTU when Hazel, who was the head of the ACTU when Hazelwood was closed, a passionate supporter of a just transition, with some sobering qu- questions about the political implications of a poorly managed transition. One one quick reminder first. Please log on to after the smoke clears or one word.com.au to see extra content and sign up to our website to keep abreast of new episodes, links to social media and video content. It's a great site, so please check it out. That's after the smoke We are now joined by Michael Mersman. We are joined by Michael Mersman, who is the Director of Globalization and Energy and European Policy, Industry Gewerkschaft, Bergbau, Chemie und Energie, which is the German Union for Mining, Chemicals and Energy Workers. In this capacity, he has worked on what is widely considered the most successful examples of transitioning from coal to renewables in history. For those who don't know, the Ruhr is an area in northwestern Germany, the country's coal mining heartland. Between 1997 and 2015, a partnership between the government, industry and the unions oversaw the reduction of 72,820 jobs. Their credo and philosophy was that no miner would be unemployed. Michael, welcome to the show. Hello, greetings from Germany. Ah, thank you. So, why is the German example in the Ruhr Valley considered such a successful example? Well, I think uh, what I learned when I was in Australia with our friends from CMFEU, and um, what I learned was that there are big differences between uh, the relationship between companies, between uh, government and unions or let's say workers. In Germany we have a principle after World, World War II in all our legal basics, let's say constitution law is one example for this. We have works council in every company over five employees so this works councils have special rights and the basic is that you have to find compromises, uh, what we call in Germany a little bit uh, the way of social partnership. And um, in the Ruhr Valley it was uh, so successful because we had a process where employers, where government and union sit together around the table and uh, speak about the opportunities, for example, to bring people uh, in early retirement, to bring people in extra qualification, to give them better, better um, pro- prospectives uh, for the future, or to um, send um, them to other uh, partner companies to give them a new job. Uh, the, the whole point started much earlier than 1997. It started already in the 60s where the first uh, agreements were made, because we came, in general, from a figure of over 600,000 miners when, we, when Germany started after World War II. And uh, already since the 60s and 70s, we had those uh, uh, programs uh, to reduce our mining stuff and to close mines. And at the moment, in, since February this, this year, um, there is only one mine, uh, let's say a little bit open, all other... Hardcore mines are closed now. 
And we, uh, and you know, the, the fact that three uh, partners sat around the table, government, employees, and um, let's say the workers, um, means that we had or, uh, also money from outside to um, well manage all these processes to avoid unemployment at the end. Yes, so I, I'm very interested in the partnership that you had between uh, the industries, uh, the government and unions in Germany. Here in Australia, yeah. that idea, as you said, is a little bit of a pipe dream. We usually have any two of those or all three battling with each other or internally. Yeah. Were, were you ever concerned that the atmosphere of goodwill as a, as a union director that compromises you made would be exploited by either the government or more particularly industry? Not really because uh, miners uh, normally in every country I know miners have a big power because they stand together most of them um, in Germany, it is a fact over more than 98% of our people are member in the union. Yes. So there were also fights in Germany in the beginning where miners uh, go on a run to, to the capital in, in former times, Bonn, to, to well pressure well, the, the government, of course, and also the employees. At the end, for all partners, it was the best way to be frank and, uh, and, and clear, and um, if they made agreements, and they did, then these agreements were uh, hold up to the end. And it is still today that we have thousands of people still in qualification measures, etc., etc. Right. When an area goes into long-term unemployment, there are significant social costs. We have some of this in Australia, where there is a large stress on families and a large stress on local business. Were you thinking, were you worried about that when you were going through this process? Mm, yes, of course, because it is not only the mine what becomes unemployed, also all the surroundings, let's say the butcher or the, the uh, handyman, you know, we live also yes. from uh, uh, the people in the mine. Uh, but that was the reason why we um, discussed not uh, even the mining sector. We did it together with all the other uh, sectors around the mine. So it was, in the, in the case of the Ruhr Valley, it was a process for the whole Ruhr Valley, not only for special mines. It was a process for 10, 12 mines in the peak. So, just going to when you came to Australia for that uh, for the Senate committee yeah. meeting in November 2016. If I, uh, yes. I'd just like to read out a little bit that your colleague, uh, Mr. Norbert Maus, said. Yeah. He said, regarding the timeline, there has always been a timeline. If I go back to 2007, that is when the coal funding law was passed. That was when it was decided that the coal mining industry in Germany would ha most likely end by 2018. Now we know that it will. We yeah. had a total of 11 years of which nine has have passed to prepare and work towards this. We talked with our colleagues. Yeah. We talked with everybody. We held all the necessary discussions to make clear to everybody that a political decision 
to end coal mining by 2018 was taken. And then we had our senator there, who was the chair, said, of course, here in Australia, the transition is happening, but as our governments have not planned for it. So in Australia, we have a situation in which the industry is forced by laws to keep a closure secret till the last moment. Um, How important in Germany was a timeline and a long period of planning? Well, um, without a timeline and and, and a timetable, you will never manage such a process because people have to prepare. I spoke about qualification. That needs a while, so you have to plan which people can I qualify to give them a better better uh, situation for searching for a job uh, or to to look around the partner companies who can uh, overtake some people with a special qualification and at the end of course uh, the most important thing for uh, good time planning is uh, this early retirement uh, issue because uh, you know you need to to ensure people that they, if they go in early retirement at the end, can live from that from that money. What kind of uh, additional money do they need to 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 have a good life afterwards? Mm-hmm. If they go with 50 in early retirement, for example, and that happens in that case. Yes. Not everyone, but not yeah. So how important? were well-established labor laws, agreements, and regulations for the successful transition? Well, the labor laws we do have in Germany, fortunately. Um, I know the situation. I, I learned from my friend from CMFEU. I learned a lot about uh, missing labor legal rights, let's say, in Australia. But at the end, the question is not um, if you have legal right or whatever. The question is whether reasonable people think about the future of a country or a region and sit together to solve that situation. If not, you know, you, you play with peace in those uh, regions um, or countries. And that can't be a, a good goal for a government, for example. And that is, that is the key point, I think. The key point is, you know, you can sit in your room you will never find a solution. You have to come out to speak to all other around you to find a solution for such a problem. And if you if you think people can go unemployed for the rest of their life, then you will see that will have a, a big effect on on um, what trust. Do I trust my government or what is kind of uh, let's say peace in my region? So those things are important, and for, for me, it is just a question of uh, of a clear brain and uh, well, what can I do the best for my country? Yes. If you have a if you have a situation where everyone goes on strike, what 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 is the difference? It is just strike is not funny, you know. It's not funny for the union. It's not funny for the people. Um, that's that's necessary, but. If I have a chance to find um, alternative ways, then I should do. Yes, yes. So the kind of argument that we hear in Australia about planning a transition far in advance is that investors would recognize that an industry is changing 
that brings in uncertainty and unpredictability and might scare investors yeah. away can uh, accelerating or even beginning an industry's decline how was the coal industry in germany able to remain profitable throughout the transition yeah well that is a discussion this is very difficult because a lot of people say mining industry in germany was not uh, um, profitable we had a, really a situation where uh, mining in germany is much more expensive than in other countries uh, well, that depends on different production ways. We had to get the coal out of the earth in, in more than 1,000 meter, uh, you know, deep. And that, of course, is also responsible for much higher costs to get them, to, to get this coal. So at the end, again, the, the point is what do I do in your country, for example? Mm -hmm. Um, I see you have one of the most important economic factors for export is coal. On the other hand, you are, you are going now, just transition, you are starting not with the mines, you are starting with power uh, stations. That is what I learned to make it easy. If you start with power stations and not, of course, with the important coal, at the end you, you can't go around the coal because... Uh, you know, exporting coal, very important for you, but you have on the long, long run to look for an alternative for your country. Because the whole world is changing in, 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 this, in the question of using coal. Yes. So I'd just like to talk very briefly about uh, the amount of workers that were retrained. So looking at the numbers from 72,820... 43,000 yeah. took early retirement, 2,000 took yeah. a change of jobs, there were 11,000 that was part of a normal turnover of staff, of remaining yeah. were 26,572 that had to be retrained. How did you approach that, such a massive task? Yes, it was a massive task, but yeah, that is one of the points where we come again on the question of timetable. That is the reason why you have to plan that and to to build uh, um, well big resources to do those jobs to qualify people. And um, the mining company at the end in the '97 and later we had only one mining company. All mines were came together in, under one umbrella, and so it was much more easier to to um, organize those um, qualification measures. That is one point. The second point I, I see is um, um, it was a task for a whole region. You, we speak about Ruhr Valley, so that is a very big region, and they managed it very good uh, since the 90s. Uh, if you go there, I was born in that region, and if you go there today, in earlier time, they said if you, if you hang out white laundry, um, to dry it, uh, then it have is, is grey in the evening. Mm -hmm. Today it's, it's a wonderful region. It is clean, and uh, they did a lot of things. We have um, a lot of places uh, where we just um, hold the old factories, the old mines, to to show also where we come from in that region. And is that is still today? The people are living still living with this culture 
And that is not possible if you don't do it together. Yes, I've seen the, some of the photos, um, how the transformation from all these really large coal pro, uh, processing plants yeah. and things into, uh, there's one which is for, with a pool in it, in the middle of it. Thank you very much, uh, Herr Mausman. Thank you very much yeah. for that. That was uh, very illuminating. Okay. Okay. Uh, Thank you for having me and uh, good future. You're listening to 3CR Radio. This is Jeff Dyke, the Victorian Branch Secretary of the Mining and Engineering Division of the CFMEU and Moe resident. Uh, Jeff experienced firsthand exactly what privatisation meant for the Latrobe Valley community and workers. He can testify to exactly what happens when a transition is not managed correctly. The opposite of a just transition has to be an unjust transition. Welcome, Jeff. Yeah, welcome. Um, so what was the community told to expect from restructuring and privatisation? Look, um, when privatisation was first touted by the government, the government told the community that um, it would uh, the power industry would become more efficient, um, we'd have cheaper power prices, that it would be good for the economy. Yep. Um, Obviously, um, the asset sales would benefit Victorians um, and it would be more competitive and it would be better for business. Mm -hmm. The the reality was local business got behind that and they used to call the SEC slow, easy and comfortable and um, they were quite disparaging um, towards the workers in the power industry. Um, However... Over a decade, as the SEC transitioned from a a corporate enterprise to a private um, industry, 8,000 jobs were lost. Uh, Those businesses that strongly supported um, the privatisation, probably half or a quarter of them closed Mm -hmm. um, with the um, loss of economic activity in the Latrobe Valley with 8,000 jobs. There was um, net... Um, depopulation, um, lots of um, people uh, moving interstate and looking for work in other um, it, within the power industry, but within other states. That caught, brought about um, a slump in housing prices. Um, at that stage, you could buy any number of two-bedroom weatherboard houses for twenty thousand dollars a piece. The SEC, which basically was self-sufficient in Latrobe Valley. Um, They actually moved to their core activities, which is power generation. So a lot of the support activities, such as um, the very large machine workshops, the generator and motor rewinding workshops, um, the foundry, you know, drafting services, a lot of those things were were shut down. And for example, um, the SEC used to rewind generators and motors. That work's now done down in um, in Geelong. So any work associated with rewinding motors and um, generators is all moved um, to Geelong or interstate. Yep. You know, there was a lot of loss in the service sector that yeah. actually supported the SEC. Yeah. So... I think looking at those stats you sent me, in 1991, there was still relatively high levels of employment in Morwell. Then by 96, you, we, you had 33% 
of men between 25 and 34 either unemployed or not in the labor force in Morwell. What did those changes look like in the streets? Well, obviously, very high youth unemployment. Um, what The effect of that was um, young school leavers um, to find work were um, moving to Melbourne. We saw that in the community um, with um, sporting clubs have, having difficulty to fill teams. Um, you know, a lot of schools, a number of schools closed down over the region. There's um, obviously a lack of um, apprenticeship training and uh, other training for people. We actually saw a number of um, government departments rationalise themselves and close their local offices, which resulted in, um, you know, further losses of jobs. Um, the... Um, I guess the Latrobe Valley for country areas got, um, you know, some of the highest crime rates and drug use, mm-hmm. you know, in Australia. I think even 20 years on, uh, Maui, Moore and Churchill are still in the top 40 disadvantaged towns in Victoria. Um, so, you know, there's been a big social cost um, mm-hmm. to the Latrobe Valley. You know, the even in... The towns now, there's a lot of empty shops. The area's really struggled and hasn't fully recovered. Um, During privatisation, the Liberal government basically put no resources whatsoever to address a transition. So the Latrobe Valley was just abandoned. Um, We saw, you know, nothing to mitigate the impact of um, the job restructuring. Yeah. So... In the pubs at the time, what kind of conversations were people having? Well, you know, people obviously um, fearful for, for their jobs and their job security. Um, obviously, you know, if you're a breadwinner, you know, you, you need to earn an income. And, you know, most of these guys have got a wife and two kids. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we saw a lot of people being, um, when the SEC was downsizing, um, they actually did some very nasty things like they they put, you know, groups of maintenance people in um, in workshops and gave them no work to do. Mm-hmm. And they did that for month after month yeah. and those people um, got so frustrated that they um, left, took a voluntary departure. Yeah, they felt like um, that they'd been just cast away as um, rubbish and yeah. um, and those people left. Um, a lot of them um, moved into fly-in, fly-out work. Yeah. Um, so um, they they um, perform maintenance and outages in, when these power stations do major maintenance. But they also a lot of them fly into Queensland, New South Wales, and other places to do um, maintenance work on a fly-in, fly-out basis. Yeah. So as a rep. For the CFMEU, you must have had a close understanding of what your members were going through as workers. Uh, what happens to a person and their family when they go through a long, long-term unemployment? Well, um, typically, um, you know, the people that were unemployed in this case were skilled workers. Um, often, you know, with young job seekers, um, they haven't got skills. So, but typically, when you find um, um, skilled workers that are unemployed and there's no work in a region, what they do is they 
they sell the house, they get their wife and two kids and they move into state. Um, and so what you see is a, a loss of, you know, whole families from the community. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, you, you see a very depressed housing market, very depressed um, local business conditions, you know, um, high, very high youth unemployment because um, you've got a lot of people com- com- competing for few jobs. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so... Um, and, yeah. be- and because you've got a surplus of skilled labour, there's no need to train young labour. So what... That skilled pool probably sat around for about 20 years. And what you see in the demographics is um, where the average age of the workforce in the SEC days may have been about um, 35 to 45, the average age of the workforce is up around 55 to 60 because there was a 20-year period where no new people were hired. And so for the people that are lucky enough to have jobs in this situation, they were, a lot of them were brought back on as contractors. Is that, is that correct? Um, yeah, look, some were brought on as um, contractors. Um, obviously, with um, um, removing the non-core um, jobs, like, such as, you know, the armature winding workshops, you know, and you know, where you see motors get rebuilt in Geelong instead of Little Trove Valley, those jobs are yeah. gone. And, you know, we see safety valves being reset in Ballarat or Sale. Mm-hmm. Um, so those jobs are, are gone from the region. Um, the contractors, um, there was a move to, instead of having permanent maintenance workforce, the um, private companies moved to a casual um, contract workforce yeah. Um, there was a, a level of um, permanently embedded contractors within some of the, some of the um, companies, but um, in a large part, you know, the the numbers would swell by maybe even up to three hundred contractors during a major outage. But yeah. that would be temporary work for a month mm. or so, you know. Um, so was there a sense that Melbourne was sucking up all the money and the jobs in that period? Well, the, probably um, the thing, um, there was twi- at the time in those dollars, there was $22 billion in asset sales. Now, that money went into, you know, general revenue for the state. Um, in terms of support for the transition for Latrobe Valley, there was zero. Mm-hmm. So I guess um, from the valley's perspective, it, it seemed like that all the value that was here in the valley was sucked out and nothing was given back. Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, there was a sense that the government, state government had just abandoned us and yeah. um, we were just left to, um, you know, manage as best as we could. I guess looking back on it, did people... Were, were they aware of what privatisation and restructuring meant or did it come as a total shock? Um, I, I don't believe that, um, and certainly the community um, through the media and that weren't aware. They were sold all the benefits how privatisation was actually going to make, you know, improve the place, make it more efficient, provide cheaper power, more jobs, um, People um, certainly weren't aware of the dramatic impact, um, particularly business. The local businesses that were 
you know, was saying, yeah, yeah, make the government, you know, enterprise more efficient. Um, once all their customers were gone, they went bankrupt. Yeah. Um, you know, they they really, um, you know, underestimated the impact that, you know, the um, the wages and um, the jobs had in maintaining the economic activity of the Trove Valley. Yeah, yeah. Because um, you get this impression that when there's a... If, if a level of depression and decline is enough and concentrated in a particular area that there's so many... Um, it, it drags everything else down with it and that the ability to recover is really hampered by the fact that there's the whole area's in decline. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd say, you know, the valley was um, rec- recovering for or trying to recover and um, for 20 years, you know. Um, so the impact lasted a good 20 years mm-hmm. on the region. Uh, we sort of got to the point where we... St- Stabilised, and then obviously now we're looking at you know Hazelwood's. Well, first we had the Mall Briquette factory closed. Yep. Uh, we lost about sixty direct jobs there, um, not counting indirect work for contractors and things like that. Um, then you know the next cab off the ranks um, two years later was Hazelwood. Um, there were seven hundred and fifty jobs mm-hmm. lost there. Um, the impact was mitigated a little bit because there's still mine rehabilitation work going on there. So um, we there was about 130 people employed for about 12 to 18 months. Yep. Um, so that's pretty much finished up now. So we're, what we're seeing in you know in the mine is um, and in the power station for decommissioning, all that work's finished. So there's been that 130 are pretty much gone. Mm-hmm. So the Trade Valley Authority have got um, 260 ex-Hazelwood workers on their books looking for work. So, um, I I mean, potentially, if you look at each worker as, uh, you know, worker, their spouse and two kids, you know, there's a thousand people that could leave this region if they can't find work and, um, you know, um, know, they want to go somewhere to use their skills. It's not practical for uh, highly skilled power station workers to move into non-traditional um, uh, work. I mean, that we have had a few that have taken jobs as ambulance drivers mm. and uh, various other um, jobs, but they're in the minority. The ma- majority of people, you know, there's a shortage in Australia of tradesmen. So the majority of tradesmen and, and people like that will move into state where there's a shortage of tradesmen and work, you know, yeah. where there's work available. So oh, yeah. potentially what we're faced, there's a bit of a buffer because the guys um, got made redundant. So they got pretty good redundancy packages mm-hmm. up to two years pay. Um, which is what our union negotiated. Um, so that, but that acts as a buffer. But over time, that you know, when the guys are sitting around and they haven't got work, that money's draining away, draining away. Mm. And I know of a number of workers that have left and got jobs in South Australia and in um, New South Wales, and and that will continue if these workers aren't placed within the other power stations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's obviously. 
that that comes at a cost to the community and to those families that are actually leaving to, to take kids out of school and to, you know, to, to move to a whole different location and start again. Yeah. Oh, oh, certainly. Yeah. One one thing that was... Uh, I was talking to someone who was working for Gippsland Health uh, who was uh, local in the area, um, and he was talking about, interestingly, that pokies were made legal in state of victoria at around the same time people around here were getting um like their their payouts for yeah. being like privatized privatization if they were being made redundant and that that had that's a strange link that hasn't been talked about very much yeah i, I think that you know it's probably coincidental but yeah yeah i mean but, yeah, but still it's you know people but i i think um you know um people that are out of work for a long period of time it affects their mental health and their well-being and they tend to um drift towards you know drug use alcohol use you know gambling yeah um did you see much evidence of that in in did well, the cat get the character of Morwell change that much look um the trove valley's always been a rough industrial yeah, town yeah. so um you know um but a rough industrial town with High high employment, I guess, looks a lot different from a rough industrial town with high unemployment. Yeah, look, um, w- what I've seen in like in the pubs is um, you had the Trove Valley used to be um, twenty five years ago was a, a, um, a very rough working class yeah. um, environment. Um, so you had some um, you know working people that were pretty you know rough around the edges. Yeah. yeah. In the um, 20 years since privatisation, um, the Trove Valley is still a very rough environment, but yeah. the the people are not working people there at, at welfare. Um, um, and, you know, you've got generational unemployment. Um, yeah. You've got um, heavy drug use. Yeah. Um, with the cheap housing, there was a lot of people moved from Melbourne up to the Trove Valley. Mm. Um, I guess it just moved from a tough working class environment to um, welfare dependent. The the community was used to having this entity there that they could trust and then suddenly that disappeared and it took a while for them to kind of get their stuff together and work out what was going on. Yeah, well, look, um, there's a few things. The private companies have gagged the workers, right? So... All their policies are that if you speak out publicly with, you know, mm. um, that you'll be face disciplinary action. So the workers can't actually make public com- comment on a lot of issues um, that they have knowledge about. Yeah. And that's only, that's possible a lot because there's so many um, workers and so few jobs. Exactly. They couldn't get away with that if that was inverted. That's right. If there was more job opportunities, people wouldn't put up with that. Yeah. But because, you know, that um, jobs are very hard to come by. You know that if you lose your job in this region, mm. you're not likely to get another one. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a very real threat and they can, um, you know, bully people into behaving like that and not actually, um, yeah. you know, having their democratic right to, you know, to make public comment. Yeah. Yeah. And that must have, like, that, to realise that your your job, you're, very, you're quite re- replaceable, 
uh, and the, the big consequences of not being able to get another job must be really must have been had a huge stress on the the community and the workers especially that if if you lost your job you were either unemployed or you had to move out of an area that you were familiar with that you'd grown up with sometimes multiple generations yeah often that must have been like you must have had people come to you and just been just stressed oh, out look we, we have um where we do see it um we have people um workers that are getting bullied yeah you know by their managers or whoever and um, they're trapped, in, they're economically trapped with that company. They can't just leave their job because yeah. there's no other job to go to. And um, if they quit their job, they'd have to move their family into state. So yeah. um, we see that all the time where people are trapped in an environment that's less than ideal, um, but they've got no other choice but to um, suck it up. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and that in turn like if you have that happen to a particular worker then they go home and their whole family feels that stress right you have someone coming home and they're like you know and that must have been going on straight from the um straight from privatization for a huge period of time and you have a really stressed like series of families it's i don't know how that must have been how did that manifest itself in in the community well you know um when, when companies are downsizing and um, people fearful for their job, um, you know, like um, it restricts your ability to take out a loan, for example. Yeah. If you, you know, if you're not certain about your job, you know, you can't um, yeah. take out a loan to to build a house or, yeah. um, you know. So, you know, um, it certainly um, has an impact, um, and. Um, you know, like I said, for economic reasons, people get trapped within a job, and sometimes it's 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 not good for their career, but they're trapped there. Yeah, yeah. And does does more uh, more well in the valley? Do they have uh, aging population because a lot of the kids don't see any future and got out? Yeah. Look, um, certainly, um, as I said, um, you see. In the age demographics, a 20-year window where no young people were hired. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. you know, a large proportion of our workforce is 55 plus. Um, and um, there's not many in the middle. There, there's another group that as um, older workers started retiring after 20 years, they started hiring. So there's another group, <laughs> you know, around the 20 to 30. Yeah. But between thirty and fifty-five, there's yeah. um, a, a big, um, big gap where no one was hired for twenty years. There was no jobs available for twenty years, so yeah. pretty rare. Yeah. So um, we see that demographic is, you know, pretty low. Yeah. Finally, is is the valley on the way to recovery? Is it close to recovery? Um, look. We certainly need some sort of transition scheme, mm-hmm. um, you know, and given that um, putting aside uh, we only had five months' notice of closure of Hazelwood, yeah. uh, we do know that your lawn will eventually shut at some point in time. So there's no reason why the government couldn't have some regulated trans- transition scheme in, mm-hmm. in place designed you could design it now. Yeah. The fact that it might not be implemented 
um, for three years or five years or eight years. Uh, there's no reason why the scheme can't be um, constructed to mitigate the impact of um, your lawns closure yeah. and ultimately down the track, um, the two Loy Yangs, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Jeff, thank you very much. No worries. Thanks a lot. Senior traditional owner Yvonne Margarula invited supporters to come to Mirar Country within Kakadu National Park to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Gunjaitme Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing strong, Jabaluka 20 years is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirar.net. That's M-I-R-A-R-R dot net. A 3CR supporter. Jed Carney is the member for Batman in federal parliament, but back in 2016, when the closure of Hazelwood was announced, she was president of the ACTU. I've asked Jed to come on the show because of how her outspoken support of a just transition. She has, time, she has taken time out of parliament to talk to us. Jed, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure, Kurt. My pleasure. So the Paris 2015 agreement defines a just transition as the imperatives of a just transition of the workforce and the creation of decent work and quality jobs in accordance with nationally defined development priorities. Repeat, nationally defined development priorities. Mm -hmm. It's well-intentioned but a bit vague. What does a just transition mean to you? Well, I'm hoping that um, nationally, in Australia, this would be very much a priority, and I'm pretty pleased to say that if uh, Labor were elected, it would be just that. So for me, a just transition essentially means uh, keeping the dignity and prosperity of, uh, of workers and their communities at the front and centre of tackling climate change. Now, primarily, this is these are communities and workers who are um, affected by policies that we, we use to tackle climate change. Um, and I heard you talking before, it's like closing down, well, you know, we're seeing the demise of the coal industry. What happens to those communities and those workers needs to be planned and they need to know that they have a future and that their their kids do as well if they choose to stay in that community. So it's easy to say that, I guess, but like everything, it, it really depends on how you put that in practice. And um, in the Labor Party, we uh, Mark Butler is our shadow climate change minister mm -hmm. and he is ably assisted by Pat Condoy, who's the assistant minister. And I know that uh, we've been developing, ever since I was at the ACTU, we've been developing a, a very detailed just transition policy, uh, working with unions, with the industry, yep. uh, with all, all stakeholders. Uh, it's interesting you bring that up because earlier, um, first up in the show, we had a uh, Michael Merseman, um, who was the director of globalization and energy policy for the mining union in Germany. And to be quite frank, it's a little bit embarrassing just how ahead of the curve the Germans are planning this thing since the eighties. They've managed, they managed a partnership between the unions, industry and government. We seem to have very low expectations of corporate responsibility beyond their responsibility for shareholders. How do we force business to care for the communities that support them? 
Yeah. Look, you're exactly right. We, we are a long way behind the Germans and we're trying to learn valuable lessons from them. Um, at that conference that you mentioned, the, uh, the ACTU and the CFMEU, the mining division actually brought out uh, the mining unions from Germany to tell us about their fantastic story, how they transitioned. So they had a plan that's taken 50 years, you know, oh, to have a government that would plan 50 years ahead. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Um, but we, unfortunately, we don't. I mean, there's other different things in Germany as well. I mean, they have um, a very um, socially democratic approach to industry. They have worker representatives on company boards. Um, businesses that aren't unionised are by law required to have what we call workers' councils where the management has to sit down and negotiate with councils. I mean, with workers rather and imagine having such pro-worker rules here it would be fantastic when will we ever get a you know from this government anyway our attacks and demonizations of unions on a daily basis but we, we have to do better you're right um and i think it means governments taking new initiatives and um, working with unions working with industry making it clear that industry has a responsibility to its workers and to their communities because i don't know but i really get the feeling that the days are over when Everybody swallowed the line that economic process is yeah. only about tax cuts for corporations, wise businessmen, corporate high towers, you know, just look at the Royal Commission, I think, and the, and the fallout from that. People are becoming more and more sceptical about yeah. that. And, you know, the, the Labor government will have, and I think um, we're going to have a very good policy, and I can tell you a little bit about what's at the centre of that policy, but I think it will help corporations rise to the, to the challenge, well, as you state it. I hope so. Um, there was one one thing in particular, which is like uh, we're we're hamstrung by insider trading laws, which require yeah. the decision to close a power station to be unconfirmed until the last minute. It seems that that legislation in particular is undermining our ability to conduct a just transition. How, how do we cut that Gordian knot? Yeah, this is a, a really serious issue, and the Finkel review, which was uh, a review. Um, a little while back that looked into the electricity sector actually specifically identified this problem and said that uh, companies will have to give at least a three-year notice period before they close a coal plant and that was to allow for planning, for, you know, for just transition, I guess. Certainly isn't long enough in my view, but at least they're identifying it as a problem. Uh, I know COAG is looking at this. They've endorsed that program, that, um, that proposal. And it really, it should be implemented. Uh, but you need much more than just notice of closure. We need to modernise our laws. We need to create new independent, I think, institutions that can manage a just transition process for any industry. I mean, not just coal. There are lots mm -hmm. of industries that are changing. Look at the world of IT, for example. Um, and, and there has to be a change in our culture, particularly in corporate boardrooms. The Labor Party is looking at tackling this with three ways. Uh, supporting workers getting new jobs, including through things like um, pooled redundancies across mm -hmm. multiple different companies, not just individual companies. Uh, with redeployment schemes, we have to work on diversifying regional economies, which isn't easy and requires a lot of thought and time. And this, what I just mentioned, this creation of um, institutions that will look at different industries and help us plan for those transitions. Right. I think in this country, uh, we also st struggle with a really 
toxic partisanship in federal politics undermining uh, constructive action. Do you think a just transition is even possible in a political atmosphere? Mm, It would be very good to have bipartisanship on um, something as important as this. It'd be good to have bipartisanship on energy policy or or climate change Mm. or carbon pollution, but to be perfectly honest, the Liberals aren't filling me with hope (laughs) right now um, on this issue. Uh, so look, they signed up to Paris and they, the government doesn't have a single policy, yeah. not a single policy to make Paris agreement happen. So I think it's pretty clear if we want to see a transition to a low pollution economy, we've got to get a Labor government elected. And that's doubly true if we want that to include a just transition. The government, our government argued against having the, that just transition wording in the Paris agreement, the one that you read out at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, they're not committed to it. And, you know, I, I, I'm very pleased to say that the Labor Party is, and we've got Pat Conroy and Mark Butler leading that charge. Mm. So we heard from uh, Jeff Dyke earlier, who's a CFMEU um, secretary for uh, mining, uh, and it... Uh, he, he just described the social implications of a poorly managed transition. It costs uh, lives, it ruins families. You gave a really welcome address to the Just Transition Conference in 2016, which was held in the wake of the closure of Hazelwood. Mm. You also spoke there about talking to a worker that considered Trump said some, quote, uh, all right things, unquote. Then you said Australia is in a very interesting position. Australia can go one way or it can go another way. What are the political implications of not following a just transition? Oh, I think they are all around us. Uh, you know, you look at what happened um, when the textile clothing and footwear industry collapsed after trade barriers were, were pulled down, uh, what's happened to the car industry, what happened mm. with you know, the city of Elizabeth. I think you've talked about that. I mean, uh, what we do know from the research, and it's quite dirty research, is that about a third of people go on in those um, affected industries. They do go on to get another job. About a third get um, casual, insecure, lesser paid, less qualified work, and then a third never work again. And... Um, you know, we know this for a fact, and then and when that happens, there's more division, there's more partisanship. People lose faith, they lose hope, they get angry. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, they they lose um, faith in our politics and politicians, yeah. and and that's not a good thing. And we're I think with rising inequality right around the world, uh, Australia's still in a fairly good position, but we know that inequality is rising. But we need to have policies that can offer people hope and decent jobs. Um, you know, these, these are these are real impacts that we know happens and the despair and disappointment of, of workers and, and their communities who would, you know, they need to believe that we can actually um, uh, manage these transitions well for them and their future. I couldn't agree more, Jed. Jed, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. My
Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. There are two announcements. The first is for the Climate Emergency Conference, which is being held tomorrow at Northcote Town Hall. Look up Climate Emergency Conference on the internet. Tickets are free and available through Eventbrite. Secondly, please log on and check out the website for this program, uh, this series, www.afterthesmokeclears.com.au, all one word. For more information, for the next episode airing on November the 12th, we will be heating things up in the lead-up to the Victorian state election. We will talk to the Liberal Party and National Party and Greens about their plans for transition. Thanks to Viv, Andy, Roger and Vanessa. Salute, Babette. This is 3CR.